I was going to do an essay that I've been thinking about writing for a long time called The Problem of Things Today about learning to suffer and uh, rise above things through sitting with yourself, which is a very sort of Eastern approach. I decided I'm, I, I really need to talk about George Floyd. Um, there are other names. There's Elijah in Colorado, Brianna, I guess in Kentucky, and uh, Jacob Blake. The list is overwhelming. I just saw this picture on Facebook, and basically the picture says, you've stolen more than we could ever loot. There are complications to this discussion. Police have rights. You know, it's it's not like police don't have rights, for God's sake. But they're, you know, they're, they've done some bad shit, and the whole linear culture has misbehaved significantly so. The bad apple thesis in relation to cops is absurd. I wrote a piece on Ferguson in 2014. I was very careful not to overplay my hand because I didn't want to sound excessively anti-police. Time has passed. I have seen so much footage of just terrible behavior from police. I have changed my views on the subject. Or I should say, I've changed what I'm willing to say publicly. In the larger context of racist white institutions, the response is not a rational response. And you wouldn't have a rational response if people were trying to kill your people. You would not have a rational response to police brutality, to post-colonial institutions. They would drive you crazy. You would have some rational responses, such as building businesses, investing in your children's education, etc., etc. But you're going to also have some irrational responses that are part of the fight-or-flight mechanism. And you might light some buildings on fire. You might fuck some shit up. You know, you're going to go buck wild at times, and that's okay. You know, what do you, you know, it is okay. You had these 500 years or more of unrestrained, I will argue that it slowly became more and more restrained, but a lot of it was unrestrained misbehavior, sexual misbehavior, political misbehavior, economic oppression, all of it. And then you and, and you and it really didn't stop formally till 1965 or 68 for the black for blacks it's 1968 you could argue in a legalistic in a linear legalistic sense, but really this shit keeps going keeps going for black people keeps going for Latin Americans Latinx, you know it's just and I know I'm going on and on, but when does it end? When does this shit end? And you don't have to be black to be furiously upset you can be a white protester and be involved in property damage i can get that you know i wouldn't do it but i understand it and i don't think the police need to respond violently that's a simple statement that's what i'm saying It's a process. It's an emotional process. It's not rational or linear. And it's not about controlling your emotions. I mean, you could do that in an ideal world, but how can you do that when institutions are continuing to attack the poor, the underclass, people of color, 
people who don't conform in terms of sexual orientations to so-called norms. You know, how can you do it when those, that type of uh, hateful energy is out there? There is going to be an explosive response in the world. There's two larger questions now that we face. One of them is truth and reconciliation, and the other is police reform. And we definitely need, in my opinion, to do both. Truth and reconciliation is a process that has occurred in other countries. It can be done at the community level. It can be done at the city level. It can be done at the state level. It can be done at the federal level. And everything benefits. It is part of the emotional recovery from post-colonialism. I had a conversation with Joy DeGruy, and her feeling was that you need to have a cessation of violence, of racialized violence, institutional racialized violence, before you can attempt truth and reconciliation. And I probably differ with her on this point. I think the efforts can be made in a piecemeal fashion. It's hard to engage with the oppressor to do truth and reconciliation when you still see violence and institutional violence still occurring. So I understand her perspective without any doubt. I think it's valuable for whites to take responsibility for what their ancestors have done. How does one take responsibility? I think the number one way for me personally that I really believe in is supporting education funding for everyone. Separating education funding from property values and helping all communities to elevate and educate their children. There's also proceedings that I, you know, where people can come forward and tell their story, tell the story of their people as being slaves and slave owners. And I can assure you that's a humiliating experience for both parties, but it's a valuable one because it helps you to understand where you're at right now and then this time so that you can move forward. Police reform is so important now. It's not a simple discussion. The whole question of whether or not we live in a democracy is up for debate. That's increasingly clear. And I'm in, in particular, I'm referring to what happened in Portland and basically a fixation with property as opposed to um, a concern for general peace. Property damage is not that bad. It sucks. It's a bummer if you own that property, but it's just not that bad. The moral equivalence between property damage and violence against protesters doesn't exist. The question of police reform, you know, it's a larger discussion. I don't think it's about defunding the police. It's really just about investing in communities, funding other programs, and in particular education, and having police not respond to everything. That's part of helping the police. By funding schools, by funding other institutions, you benefit the police. Now, does that mean that you can reduce the sort of militarization of the police? Probably. Probably. And there does need to be some internal reforms within the police communities and within police professional associations and, and within uh, police departments in general. They need to look within and ask themselves, are they doing 
what they need to do. And they probably need to be held to a higher standard. As I've said at other times, they need to be held to the standard that nurses are held to in terms of educational standards and professional standards. That's very reasonable requests that one would make of the police. We give too much power to uneducated people who seek positions in police work. Too much authority, too much influence, too much power, too much privilege that they have not earned in either civil society or natural law. Police need to be held to the same professional and educational standards of nurses. I'm not the first person to say this. Until then, the police are going to continue to kill innocent people. And I have to assume people are going to continue to respond by rioting. And ultimately, what comes next, I won't give voice to. But you can read between the lines. So I'm going to do a little addendum on police history. Essentially, the argument is that modern policing is an outgrowth of slave patrols. And I think there's some truth to it, but I think it's a little more nuanced. My first source is Time Magazine. They actually did nicer work than I thought they would have done. In any case, basically what they say is that early policing was fairly disorganized night watches in colonial America that exhibited many inefficiencies. One of the reasons they had inefficiencies is that they hired drunks and criminals to do the work of policing. To some extent, there's some irony there. If You could see it, maybe, if you can. That's a terrible thing to say. I'll probably edit it out. The first formal slave patrol emerged in 1704 in the Carolinas. The first publicly funded organized police force surfaced in Boston in 1838. Merchants had already hired people to protect port goods, and they found a way to convince local authorities that it was a collective good. After emancipation in the South, sheriffs worked much, much like slave patrols to ensure segregation and black disenfranchisement. Throughout the 19th century, public order was a function of who you asked. And I think their interpretation is pretty sound. In major cities, the police worked with business interests to influence the lives of the new Irish, Italian, German, and Eastern European immigrants. The final or current chapter of this history is the professionalization of policing, which from my perspective remains incomplete. Another source that I looked into that I liked a lot, our short webpage statement, Victor E. Capeller, PhD, at Eastern Kentucky University. They have a social justice program there, it looks like. Again, there's the, the clear sentiment. Night watches and slave patrols focused on controlling minorities, including Native people. He later also shares the following, quote, Policing was not the only social institution enmeshed in slavery. Slavery was fully institutionalized in the American economic and legal order, with laws being enacted at both the state and national divisions of government. Then Compeller quotes Turner, Geocopasi, and Vendiver from 2006, quote, the literature clearly establishes that illegally sanctioned law enforcement system existed in America before the Civil War for the express purpose of controlling the slave population 
and protecting the interests of slave owners. The similarities between the slave patrols and modern policing are too salient to dismiss or ignore. Hence, the slave patrol would be considered a forerunner of modern American law enforcement. And then here's the next source, great source, the National Law Enforcement Museum. So this is coming from the horse's mouth. It's quite honest of them to identify slave patrols as a, quote, another significant origin of American policing, unquote. It goes on to say, Slave patrols were no less violent in their control of African Americans. They beat and terrorized as well. Their distinction was that they were legally compelled to do so by local authorities. In this sense, it was considered a civic duty that in some cases could result in a fine if avoided. In others, patrollers receive financial compensation for their work. Here's another quote from that same page from the National Law Enforcement Museum. Quote, After the Civil War, Southern police departments often carried over aspects of the patrols. These include systematic surveillance, the enforcement of curfews, and even notions of who could become a police officer. Unquote. And I just want to make an observation that the argument that slave patrols are the beginning of American policing, I think is too strong. You can't, you can't quite say that. I don't think that's fair. But you can definitely say that it had an enormous influence. And just because policing occurred in the South, it doesn't mean that the methods that were developed in the South didn't spread across the country. Especially if you can establish that the most well-developed policing systems originated in the South. According to The Conversation, another source I looked into, Jim Crow laws extended various laws against blacks that the police had to enforce. This point can't be emphasized too much. Jim Crow was an extended period of time, possibly as much as 100 years. It established really ugly fucking laws, and you had someone had to enforce them. So there is this culturation of the police. They themselves, the police, were brainwashed to, to, to enforce ugly laws. So in, in a sense, they were taught to misbehave. That's a very important point. That can't be emphasized too much. Now, I want to bring a counterpoint in because it's a valuable one. Jonah Goldberg of the American Enterprise Institute, he makes a few points. Um, his general failure to see the role of American slave patrols in the development of the police is obvious, but he makes a few lucid points. One of his main points is the notion that the police are asked to respond to too many situations where their skills are lacking and guns are not helpful. That connects to the poorly termed defund the police movement. He also makes what is essentially his most important point. The slave patrol argument is not quite generalizable as slaves lived in the South. The op-ed is filled with simplicities and strawman arguments, and he fails to understand some big ideas, including the following. The police enforce laws within a certain cultural and political milieu, and ultimately, the higher-order principle that drives street-level police work is the protection of private property. And he doesn't understand that slaves were private property unfortunately, and forgive the crude language. And I'm going to refer now to an article from WUWM, and it's a guy by the name of Gary Potter, justice scholar, again from Eastern Kentucky University. Quote, the police are primarily there to protect business 
property first, and residential property second, not human interactions. Potter does also address the question of force and protest. Quote, the use of force and crowd control is a serious problem. Like I've said many times, there is no moral equivalency between property damage and violence against protesters. If you don't get that, you are just you're just out to lunch, man. You're just you're just there's something wrong with you. The point of Potter of bringing Potter up is again the notion that private property protection is the purpose of the of police. Now, it, it's it, it's a complicated, nuanced history. And I'm willing to say that the slave patrols were an early place of development. But there was other policing structures in the North where there were no slaves. Of course, you could argue that they were there to control Native people. You know, most people who are making commentary on the subject basically fail to see the two fundamental observations. The police are enmeshed in the control of people of color, and the police are fundamentally motivated by the protection of private property. Those two ideas intimately relate to police brutality and uh, police responses to protests of police brutality. And the basic observations are that police shouldn't be attempting to control the lives of people of color as aggressively as they do, and they shouldn't be so obsessively concerned with the state of private property or public property. They should be concerned about peace and being peace officers. I really appreciate you joining. If you want to make a donation, please go to the website, option3project.org. Feel free to make suggestions on subjects you want covered. Here are the music credits as they appear in the show. Nothing Else Matters by Mystery Mammal. Stardust in a Cup by Drake Stafford. Breaking the Hold by Letters to the Devil. Whoop by Glass Boy. Whoop by Nico Hines. Leaves, also by Drake Stafford. Aw, by Mystery Mammal. Cloud Nine by Isig Music. Marie Trahignon by Armed Robbery in the Nude. The Great, and another song called Hella by Broke for Free. World of Hardstyle Ravers by Hardstylers. One Fine Day by The Insider. Media Moon by Media Moon. Breathe by Amphis. Love Comes Close by Christine Marie and No Control by Jazar. Most of the music is courtesy of Tribe of Noise. Some tracks came from the Free Music Archive. I also want to thank Dave Visea at Podcast Engineers for his role in editing and engineering on this, and he's going to help me out on further episodes. Okay, have a great day, folks. Please tune in next time. Bye-bye.